Are you a persuasive person? Who's the most persuasive person in your family? Start some family arguments right now. Husbands and wives, who's the more persuasive one? Kids? Which one of the siblings gets out of trouble the most? Right? Somebody did something wrong, and somehow they always get out of it. Do you think of yourself as a persuasive person? What about in your group of friends? Who seems to always end up deciding where you go to eat or where you hang out? Right? I mean, they're all different forms of persuasion. Some are the arguing type. Some are the sulking type. Some use the emotional manipulations and these things. Persuasion is a powerful thing we're confronted with all of the time. And in our passage this morning, as I already mentioned, I know it was a long text, but it's so important to read the entire thing because the bulk of this text is a sermon from the Apostle Paul there in this synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And what we see Paul doing is masterfully using uh, persuasion with compassion to seek to explain, to declare as clearly as possible the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Testament in the person of Christ. Well, before we get there, we need to see well, how do we get there? How do Paul and Barnabas end up in Pisidian Antioch? And that's really where our text begins. And so right initially, as we look at this text, we, we start in verse 13. And as Mike mentioned, they are on this journey, this journey where they've been sent out from the church in Antioch. They've traveled to Cyprus and gone from the east coast of Cyprus to the west coast of Cyprus. And in verse 13, we find it says, Now Paul and his companions... Now, right from the beginning, I, I'm going to say this. I think the, the way that Paul and Barnabas get to Pisidian Antioch is because they practice a spirit-dependent, flexible persistence. A spirit-dependent, flexible persistence. Now, we may not catch this initially, but right there in verse 13, something significant has changed in the way that Luke is talking about this traveling group. Up to this point, Barnabas has been, as it were, the leader, and he's at least been primary in things. He shows up first in the book of Acts. Barnabas is there in the church in Jerusalem. He's selling things and giving it to the church. Barnabas is the one who's the, the, um, the, 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 the intermediary, if you will, between Paul after he's converted and the apostles in Jerusalem, so that Barnabas is the one who connects them. Barnabas is the one who was originally sent by Jerusalem to the church in Antioch, and it's Barnabas who goes and gets Saul. At the beginning of chapter 13, when we have this list of the prophets and teachers in Antioch, guess whose name shows up first? Barnabas. And guess whose name is dead last? Saul. And throughout the passage we were in last week, it's always Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. And now all of a sudden as we come after this encounter with Bar-Jesus, do you remember that? And Paphos, this, this um, magician, this Jewish false prophet. And Paul is the one who steps up. And through Paul, God performs this miracle of judgment. Now there's this change in verse 13. And it says, Paul, and we don't even get Barnabas, we just get and companions. And they set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. So they leave the island of Cyprus and sail upward towards what's modern-day Turkey. And it tells us at the end of verse 13 something else significant has happened. John 
left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of speculation about why John left. Some say that maybe uh, there was sickness that hit them while they were there in Perga. Perga is at sea level, and there's some indication of that. Galatians chapter 4, that perhaps Paul and maybe the rest of the group got sick while they were there, and maybe John Mark decided uh, that was enough for him, then he packed his bags. It may have been this transition that Luke seems to be hinting about in this change in leadership. And John Mark wasn't too excited that Paul's now taking uh, the, the leadership position, it seems, in this team. And so maybe that's the reason he leaves. We're not told, but we do know by the time we get to chapter 15 that this tension, whatever happened here, was significant enough that when Paul and Barnabas are talking about going back and visiting the churches again, they're willing to part ways over the notion of whether or not John Mark should go with them. So whatever's happening is pretty significant. So we've got, now we've got this situation where leadership has changed. That can be challenging. We've got the assistant who was there coming along with them. He's left. And not only does he go back to Antioch, notice he goes all the way back to Jerusalem. Verse 14 says, but they went from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, that doesn't seem super exciting. It just seems like we're listing places. But if we, if you look at the maps in the back of your Bible, you would see that there are a lot of significant towns and cities that Paul and Barnabas could have gone to other than going to Pisidia and Antioch. And one of the questions that, that scholars ask and commentators ask is why in the world do they go to Pisidia and Antioch? Well, one of the Thoughts is that perhaps if, if they were sick and, and Perga is at sea level, Pisidian Antioch is 3,600 feet above sea level. And so maybe the fresh air was helpful to Paul and, and Barnabas if they were sick. Some, and what, what I think maybe is a, a little more convincing case, is that this has to do with the relationship that they, that they gained with Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, there on the island of Cyprus. History tells us that, that Sergius Paulus had relatives in this area, in this region around Pisidian Antioch, which is labeled Pisidian Antioch because there were 16 Antiochs. So you got to kind of distinguish which Antioch you're talking about. That possibly it's, it was through this relationship with Sergius Paulus, who it seems in verse 12 comes to faith in Christ, that perhaps he said to Paul and Barnabas, listen, go tell my family about this. And perhaps he even sent them with letters telling his family who they were and to, to welcome and to care for these traveling preachers. And so Paul and Barnabas take that as a means of saying, okay, this, this is where we're going to go. We're going to go from Perga. We're going we're to go on to Pisidian Antioch. Some people, as they look at this first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas and the second and on from there, they see strategy everywhere. They kind of picture Paul in particular as this master strategist able to see around every corner and every step is thoroughly and completely planned out and he knows exactly what he's doing all along the way. I find it hard to see that in the text. In fact, I think what we see even here in these short verses leading up to Pisidian Antioch is that, that Paul and Barnabas were called out by the Holy Spirit sent out by the Holy Spirit with the affirmation of the church, and they continue all throughout the mission dependent upon the Holy Spirit to guide them. Now, I don't want you to have a picture in your mind that they're just wandering around looking at every blade of grass and every way that the wind is blowing and going, what's the Spirit trying to tell me? No, that's not what they're doing. 
They know what their mission is because that's fixed. They know what their message is because that's fixed. The message is the good news about Jesus Christ. And the mission is to go and declare that to people who have not heard and to plant churches in these areas. Apart from that, they they trusting in the sovereign hand of God who's guiding them, guiding the circumstances of their life, guiding the people that come across their paths to direct them and guide them as to where they should go. And so whether it was through sickness or whether it was through a contact with Sergius Paulus, this spirit-dependent, flexible persistence has them to arrive where? In Pisidian Antioch. I... I know that may seem like a small thing, but it is incredibly encouraging to me when I consider, and as you read through the book of Acts, that you see this. There's this persistence. There, there are some difficult things that are already happening here, but they don't give up. They continue on. They've been called. They've been sent out. They're persistent. But sometimes we can think about persistence as only being very rigid. Right? Persistent things have to be like a mountain or a rock or iron, or, or, or metal, or something like that. But at the same time, we see this persistence, we see this flexibility. And all of that is, of course, dependent upon God's Spirit as He works. When I was thinking about this, I thought about a, a, a while back. I, I Honestly, I think it was maybe the first time that John and Rachel, who are missionaries we support here at our church, came to our missions conference when they were transitioning to their ministry in downtown Atlanta or in the Atlanta area. And I remember them giving a report and they put this stuff up on um, up on this screen and it kind of looked at the end like a mess. There were like lines going every which way. And what they were saying is, so we know what our mission is. And of course, we know what our message is. They wanted to... Uh, impact international students in the neighborhood where they live there in Atlanta with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they knew what their mission and their message was, but they were all over the place trying to figure out how did they get this thing started, right? And so up on the screen, they had, well, we, we had this contact and we thought it was going to be great. Yeah, that turned out to be nothing. So then we went over here and we met with these people over here and we didn't think that was going to be anything. And a huge door opened up for us to minister. And so we're, we're pursuing that, and it's fantastic. What they were demonstrating was exactly what I'm trying to, to bring to us and what I think we see in Paul and Barnabas here. They were practicing a spirit-dependent, flexible persistence. I know I made a toy reference last week, but I'm going to do it again this week. This is even an older toy. Some of you probably don't even know this toy. Do you remember Stretch Armstrong? Do you remember that, that toy? <clears throat> when we think of persistence... Again, we can think of something that's incredibly rigid. If I'm going to persist, if I'm going to endure, if I'm going to stand firm, I've got to be an immovable rock. Well, certainly we will see this, obviously, as Paul preaches, the message is he will not compromise that. And the mission, they will not compromise on. They didn't choose the mission. God chose the mission. And he called them. So those things they aren't going to shift on. But what we consistently see them doing in their spirit dependence is being flexibly persistent. Flexibly persistent. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged this morning that the things that are happening in your life, the neighbors that you have, the classmates that you have, the co-workers that you have, it's not an accident. The Spirit of God is working in your life. 
He is directing and guiding you. He has placed inside of each one of us who are believers the Spirit of God, and He has given to us this glorious message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And He is calling us to be Spirit-dependent and flexibly persistent as we walk through our lives. And the glorious thing is, just like we, I, I, th- that, that example of the Sherwoods, we, we have this opportunity then as we move throughout our days, as we move throughout our jobs, as we move throughout our sports teams and our schools and all of these networks that we have, we have this wonderful opportunity to be watching and searching and looking for how the Spirit of God is working and directing us so that we might find opportunities to cl- declare this wonderful message about Christ. The book of Proverbs talks about this. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. We plan, no problem with planning, but we're trusting the hand of God that it's, it, he's working. He's working. And so we want to practice this, this spirit-dependent, flexible persistence. Well, that leads Paul and Barnabas to the synagogue on the Sabbath day in Pisidian Antioch. It's likely that Paul and Barnabas had already met with the synagogue leaders. Um, and, and so they're arriving this day. It's not like they just show up out of nowhere. They arrive. And as best we know, we don't know a whole lot about how things went in the synagogue at this time. A little bit later, we have better historical records. But th- they read from the law and the prophets. And then these synagogue leaders turned to to Paul and Barnabas, and they say to them, if you have a word of encouragement, please give it. Right? Have you ever asked somebody, the wrong person, the right question? <laughs> you ever done that? You asked a history buff about a history question, and then you're just locked in for the next two hours? Right? You ask somebody who loves technology about technology, and two seconds in, you're like, I have no clue what we're talking about. Right? Ask the Apostle Paul if he has a word. We don't know what they read from the Law and the Prophets, but they ask and Paul stands up. He motions with his hand to let them know that he is about to speak. Now again, Paul here is the one who stands up and it may have been that that the reason he stands up is because remember Paul's pedigree as a Jew far surpasses that of Barnabas. Paul is a Pharisee. Paul was trained under Gamaliel. Paul, Paul was the guy in these circles and so he stands up. And he lays out this incredible message. And part of the reason we read this entire message and we're having a sermon mostly about a sermon is because what we see over and over again throughout the book of Acts is it will say Paul and Barnabas went to the synagogue and they preached the gospel. And Luke does not record outside of this text here what it is that Paul says in those Meetings in those synagogues. This is the one time he records it for us in this context. This, this here from Luke is to help us understand every time after this we're seeing Paul and Barnabas went to the synagogue. This is the type of thing they were declaring. So it's incredibly important. And what do we find as we look at this, this amazing sermon by the apostle Paul? What do we find? <clears throat> well, here's what I'm going to argue. I'm going to say that what we find as we find Paul practicing truth-rich, compassionate persuasion. A truth-rich, compassionate persuasion. As Paul stands up, he has one main point to this entire message. He wants to get to Jesus. It is obvious when you read it. There is zero question 
what Paul is driving at. Nobody who heard this would have been like, I don't really know what he was talking about. It just kind of rambled on. No, Paul is all about Jesus, unequivocally Jesus. It is right there and it is abundantly clear. But it's interesting that that's not where he starts. He starts instead by identifying with this group that he's speaking to. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. He's identifying. He's with his fellow Jews, and then there are these God-fearers who are there. Now, there are different terms used for Gentiles throughout the book of Acts. God-fearers is one of them, which would reference those who, who were sympathetic to the God of Israel, but who had not gone so far as to begin obeying the law of Moses in, in totality, going through circumcision or, or obeying the dietary laws or those types of things. But they're here in the synagogue, and so Paul addresses them and calls them to listen and where does he start in verse 13, or excuse me, verse 17? He starts by walking through seven steps, starting in Genesis, through Israel's history. Now, if you were to, to take this and you went to the synagogue that's right near us here and you preach through these seven steps, every single one of them would say, Amen and Amen and Amen. Right? All along, this is what Paul... God chose the patriarchs. Amen, brother. Preach it. God made Israel great in Egypt and then delivered them. That's right. He did. God put up with them in the wilderness. Well, they might not amen that part, right? God put up with them in the wilderness. He did. That's right. He destroyed seven nations and gave Israel the promised land. Amen. He did. God gave them judges leading up to Samuel. That's right, those judges, God used them to deliver Israel over and over again. God gave them Saul, the first king, and then he removed Saul. And no, now we get to this, this climactic point, right? And God raised up David, his chosen king, this, this man after his own heart, he's raised up. What is Paul doing? Well, he's walking through, of course, Israel's history, but he's starting with these Jews and these Gentiles who, who are sympathetic to the Scriptures, and he's starting with their, this area of agreement. He's starting with them with truth they can agree upon. This is where he's starting. He's starting with them in this compassionate way. What Paul desperately wants to do is he wants to persuade them. And there's going to be a huge jump from David over a thousand years to Jesus. He's going to do that in one verse. But up to this point, he's saying, we're together. We believe these things together. And all along the way, he's showing this is God's hand. This is God's hand. This is God's hand. Notice, it's all God doing the actions. And Israel receiving. It's God's sovereign hand. God chose God grew Israel. God delivered Israel. God was the one who put up with them. God was the one who destroyed the nations. God was the one who gave the promised land. God was the one who gave the judges. God was the one who gave Saul and removed Saul. And God was the one who raised up David. God did it. God did it. God did it. And all along they're leaning in further and further leaning in. Now I think here for us, while I'm not saying that this is prescriptive for us, it's describing how Paul preached, I do think there's an incredibly practical thing for us here. Paul is unashamedly running to Jesus, but he wants to get there in a way that his audience will listen. 
in a way that his audience will understand. And he does that here by starting with what they can agree upon. He starts with what they can agree upon. What is it that we have in common? Here are the things that we hold to together. And then he, he uses that, identifying with them to open the door so that then when he gets to Jesus, they're listening. They're leaning in. I think this is a great example for us. And I think it's a particularly great example for us to be reminded of in a time where we can almost feel like if we take time to listen to people, if we take time to see and hear people out, that somehow we're giving to them credence to what they're saying. We can seem so quickly to jump to disagreement that we don't take time first to, to see people and to hear them. Paul starts here, as I mentioned, with the agreement. I'll give you an example. This came to mind, and I think I've used this before, and, and I tried to find exactly what book or where it was. Uh, it was an illustration or, or an event that took place in D.A. Carson's life. Now, if you don't know who D.A. Carson is, he's a really, really smart guy. Whether you agree with all of his theological positions or not, the dude has more brains than most of us could imagine, right? He is incredibly intelligent. And he mentions either a moment or, or, or something where he came across uh, a young man who said to him he was an atheist. And I'm thinking in that moment, D.A. Carson is so smart, he could have run that guy through. I mean, he could have argued him up one side, down the other, and just totally embarrassed this guy. That's not what he did. Instead, he said he's found it way more impactful to ask, well, tell me, what God is it you don't believe in? He said, more times than not, if they'll explain what God they don't believe in, then he can affirm when they're done, guess what? I don't believe in that God either. Let me tell you the God I do believe in. And it opens up an opportunity to share the gospel. Paul here is unashamedly running to Christ. No one can read this sermon and say that Paul is, is squishy or, 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 or trying to evade. His, he's not doing a bait and switch thing. No, but Paul wants these brothers in Christ, these brothers, uh, these Jewish brothers to hear the message about Jesus. And I think he's probably even remembering his own heart. How hard his own heart was. If he had showed up at the synagogue one day and some random preacher showed up and started right off with Jesus, Paul would have been gone. Or maybe Paul would have been dragging the guy out to prison. So what is Paul doing? He's doing everything possible to compassionately persuade. There are different types of persuasion. There's manipulative persuasion, right? <laughs> There's persuasion that's incredibly selfish and it's wrong. But there is also incredibly good, compassionate persuasion. Persuasion of a mother trying to persuade a child to obedience, right? There's the persuasion that we see all through the book of Proverbs. A father who's calling to his son, oh, please, son, please, 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 please. Listen, son, listen. That the, the treasures of wisdom are way, way better. Pursue those, please. I, whatever words I can find, let me persuade you to walk the paths of wisdom. That's compassionate, gracious persuasion. And that's what Paul's doing here. I'm going to start with where we identify. We're, we're seven steps through Israel's history, all the way here to King David. And then what happens? Well, we get to King David, and, and as they're leaning in now, as they're listening, 
what does, what does Paul say in verse 23? Of this man's offspring, meaning David, God has brought to Israel a savior. Now, automatically, the ears are going to be up because Paul used the past tense. God has brought. It's already happened. God has brought a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Now, if there were amens up to that point, I just want you to understand at that moment, you could have probably heard a pin drop in that place. This was dropping a bomb on them. Right? This is how, this is how this, this, this sermon is so, and I, why I call it such compassionate persuasion, because we, we have Paul desiring them to listen and to hear, but he is uncompromising in the truth. The reality is, sadly, mournfully, that what Paul does here in this synagogue, some in our culture, in our society now, would say what Paul is doing is some form of, of hate speech, that, that it's toxic, that he's entered this safe space for these Jews, their synagogue, and now he's declaring to them this, this Jesus. Well, Paul's not in there being brash and rude and abrupt and mean. He is in there because he desperately wants these people to come to faith in Christ. So he is compassionately seeking to persuade them and he is unapologetic at the same time about the truth. And these two things come together. He desperately wants them to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he would not in any way back away from declaring Christ, but he wants to declare it in a way that they'll understand it. If they're going to be offended, if they're going to reject something, may they reject Christ and the truth and not any offense that Paul has brought. May he take this wonderful truth and put it as bottom shelf as he possibly can so that they hear it and they get it and they understand it so that if they're rejecting something, they've rejected the clearest presentation of the gospel he could possibly give. And of course, Paul in all of this, don't get me wrong, he's not banking on his powers of persuasion. Paul is banking on the work of the Spirit who he knows is the only one who can grant faith. So he jumps to Jesus and he paints Jesus as the promise fulfiller. Jesus is the promise fulfiller. He is the one, this great promise, this covenant made to David. Second Samuel chapter seven, Jesus is the fulfiller of that covenant promise. The, the one who was going to sit on the throne of David forever. Here he is. He's already come. The savior. It's Jesus. He's come. Now, interestingly enough, he runs straight from that and he begins talking about John the Baptist. And we may find ourselves going, what in the world? Why in the world does, does Paul then go to John the Baptist? Well, because John is the bridge. John is the bridge that connects from promise to fulfillment, right? He's the last of these great prophets who jumps from it's the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, and John is this bridge that says basically, at first, the Messiah is coming, and then what does he end up saying? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? He's the one. 
And he declares to all Israel, as Paul says in this sermon, to all Israel their need to repent, to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. He's coming. He's coming. And this great prophet who Jesus said was the greatest of prophets born of women, what does he say? John says, I'm not the one. If, you're, if you think I'm the one, I'm not the one. And then he says this incredibly powerful thing in Jewish culture. He says, listen, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now that would have hit hard with them because in Jewish culture, it was seen as an, an improper thing to ask even your slave to untie your sandals. You could ask them to wash your feet, but it was, it was beneath even a slave to say to them, untie my sandals and wash my feet. And so John is saying, you, you would ask if I'm the one? Let me tell you how unworthy I am and how supremely worthy he is. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That's how superior he is. That's how great he is. Paul then appeals again in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the, uh, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. That, that to us is emphatic. He, he puts it forward to say, it's come to us. It's coming to you right now. Christ has come and this message is coming to you about Christ. Those who lived in Jerusalem, what did they do? The rulers there. What did they do? They rejected him, but, but he's saying, don't misunderstand their rejection of Jesus. Because in their rejection, what was actually happening? In their rejection, God was further fulfilling all that had been written. In their rejection, even though he was innocent and had done nothing worthy of death, in their rejection, God was fulfilling all that was written. And what happens to him? He dies, and Paul makes clear here that he's, he's taken down from the tree and he's laid into the tomb. Why go through all of that? To highlight the fact that Christ really died. He really died. He was rejected. He wasn't deserving of death, but he was, he was crucified and he was buried. Verse 30, but God raised him. Now Paul is using a play on words here because he uses the same Greek word there as he used with David. God raised up David. Right? David wasn't looking to be king. God, God raised him up. And now he's putting a different meaning to raised up, but he's showing this in the same way that you are amening and affirming God's raising up of David as a man after his own heart. Oh, there's a greater, a greater king that God raised up in an even more significant way. He raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. We saw it with our own eyes, and we bring you the good news that God has promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Jesus is raised. So now Paul begins to back that up. What does that mean? And so what does he do? He jumps to Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, you have this, the nations are mocking at the king, Israel's king that God has set up. And God says, it doesn't matter if they mock, I will make my anointed to stand. 
And in Christ's incarnation and supremely in his resurrection, what does it prove? It proves that he is the unique son of God. You are my son, today I have begotten you. That, that just like it proved that, that God had raised up David, now a greater, a greater one has come along. Jesus Christ, and it's been affirmed and is being raised from the dead. He is indeed this chosen son. A unique relationship with God the Father. He continues on and he says, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption he has spoken. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. We read from this in Isaiah 55 where God calls to His people and says, as this promise is fulfilled to David, the blessings are going to overflow to His people. Therefore, verse 35 says, therefore He says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now this may sound familiar because Peter harped on this in his sermon at the day of Pentecost. He used this, this same passage, and so Paul begins to pull this out. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So here, this, this Jesus whom God has brought, he's just like David. He served his purpose. He fell asleep. He was laid with his fathers. But that's where the comparisons end because David underwent decay. His body is still decaying in the tomb. But God raised up Jesus. Now, I don't know what the setting was like at that moment. I don't know if people were grumbling and complaining or if they were just sitting there in stunned silence to hear what Paul is communicating to them. But Paul has laid all of this out seeking to help them to understand that Jesus Christ is the promise fulfiller. That, that the Old Testament is running to this Jesus who has come. And despite what you might think His crucifixion points to, it doesn't point to His failure. It doesn't point to the fact that He's a fraud. It actually points to the fact that He's fulfilled all that was written in Scripture. And the supreme testimony Paul is pleading is that He was raised from the dead and we are witnesses of that. And we're declaring it to you that He is the Son of God testified to in the resurrection. That He is the, the, the seed to come from David. While David saw corruption, Christ will not. That through Him, resurrection life is available to all who believe. And now he comes to his application. This is what he's been driving to. Verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. This is, the only, this is one of the only imperatives here. Up to this point, he wants them to hear. He wants them to understand. Now the imperative, know this, let it be known. Let this sink into you. Understand this, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, I don't know why the ESV chooses to translate the word there, freed. The word that's used there it's the word justification. It's justified. By Him, everyone who believes is justified from everything 
from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He's looking at his fellow Jews and these God-fears and he's saying to them, all of this that I'm declaring to you about Christ and the reason that his resurrection, his death and resurrection is so important is that because he's died and he's risen, now here's this glorious message. I declare to you forgiveness of sins is available through Christ. All that you could not attain through the law of Moses is now available to you by grace through faith in Christ. You could not be justified under the law of Moses. You could never live up to it. It was God's righteous, perfect standard, but you could never achieve it. And the law could not give you the ability to achieve it. It stood there. It stood there fixed. A righteous standard that no one could achieve. No one could live up to. Imagine those Jews sitting there in that synagogue. What was one of the reasons they were there in that synagogue listening to the law and the prophets being read? Because they were desperate, desperate, desperate to achieve the standard of the law of Moses. And every single one of them knew they were failing. Every single one of them knew they weren't measuring up. And Paul comes in with this glorious message that God has sent His Messiah to fulfill all that was written by the law and the prophets. That the law itself testifies to Jesus. It tutors us. It pushes us to our need for a Savior and He's come. And this beautiful, simple phrase, He uses a present active participle and a aorist Passive. I know that fires you up. For all who are believing, believing, always believing, confidence always where? In Christ and in Him alone. Looking never inward, never to others, always to Christ, to those who are believing, is what Paul says. They are past tense, punctiliar action, Justified. It happens at the moment that God grants faith and one believes in Christ. They are declared righteous before God. And all that they could never have measured up to under the law of Moses, they are, as it were, the blanket of God's righteousness is laid over them. They receive it. They don't earn it. The faith doesn't grant it to them as if, if somehow believing made them worthy to... No, it is an act of grace by God that they are declared righteous. What an incredible, incredible message Paul preaches to them. I can only imagine how desperate he is in that moment for them to hear, to really let this sink into them. And so he even follows up with this warning for them, and it's where we get the next imperative that he says, verse 40, beware, oh please beware, therefore lest what is said in the prophet should come about. And what he quotes here is from Habakkuk. And the prophet Habakkuk is given this, this declaration. Israel has already been destroyed by Assyria. The Assyrians think they're top dogs and Judah thinks they're untouchable. And Habakkuk stands up to say, you have no idea, the Babylonians are coming. And they're going to crush both of you, both the Assyrians and Judah. And if I told you, you wouldn't even believe it. 
And Paul's pleading with them, do not reject this message, this message of salvation that's coming to you. It's come all the way to you today. And this incredible, this is the sovereign hand of God, brothers and sisters. These Jews did not go to the synagogue that morning to hear a message about Jesus Christ. Jesus had sought them out and made sure that they were hearing a message about Him. And Paul is saying, do not reject this. Do not turn away. Oh, I can only imagine what's running through Paul's mind. All of the times he heard about Jesus. He was there when, when the last sermon like this was preached that Luke records. And it was from the mouth of Stephen who was ready to give up his life for the sake of the Gospel. And Paul, instead of believing it, was standing there guarding the coats of those who would stone him. He was rejecting, rejecting, rejecting. And now he's pleading, please don't reject it. Please don't reject it. So they went out. And the reaction is mixed. Some believe, but others are, they're unsure. They want to be, they want to hear the next Sabbath. And some, both Jew and Gentile, were told come to faith. And, and there's this great point where it says that they, that they urge them, verse 43, they urge them to continue in the grace of God. So the next Sabbath, Luke says, almost the entire city turns out. A little bit of hyperbole there. I don't think Luke went around and did a census to see if everyone from the city was there. But the crowd, I mean, the, it's, it's not like last Sabbath day. Let's put it that way. The crowd is rather large now. And as Paul begins to speak, the Jews are jealous. Some of these Jews are jealous and they contradict. And then he goes so far as to say they revile him, which is a word for blaspheme. They revile Paul. Now, I used to think that this jealousy was probably in regards to the response that Paul's getting to his message. That all this crowd has turned up to hear Paul and Barnabas, but I don't think that's what's going on here. I think in fact what's going on here is that the jealousy that's coming here, it connects to the message that Paul has proclaimed. Because notice when Paul comes down to the application of that message, he doesn't just say that, that this, this salvation is available to his Jewish brothers. What does he say? To everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. And immediately Jew and Gentile are believing and coming to faith in Christ. They are being folded in. They're getting to receive some of these covenant promises and these Jews are jealous. The root of that word is zealous. And we see this with Paul over and over again where he talks about his own Jewish people as those who have zeal, but they lack knowledge. They're zealous for the covenants. They're zealous for the law. But their zeal is blinding them. In their zeal, they're, 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 they're speaking against the very one whom God has sent to them to proclaim the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And so what does Paul do? He and Barnabas respond by saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Right? The Gospels first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Since you thrust it aside, judging yourself unworthy of eternal life, what a sad statement. You think yourself so worthy that you deem yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And here, quoting from Isaiah, Paul is putting himself in the place of the servant and saying, I'm carrying out this call of God on my life to declare the message of Jesus Christ, a light to the Gentiles. 
The Gentiles hear it and they rejoice and glorify in the word of the Lord. And there's this amazing statement that all of us who hold to predestination delight in and all of us who are Arminian, we, 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 we cross it out in our Bibles, right? This statement, what does he say? He said, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, Paul wasn't writing that to have a, a gotcha verse for those who believe in predestination. Uh, what is he saying? He's saying that, that this gospel coming to the Gentiles was not an accident. He's preached this whole sermon showing how the sovereign hand of God has worked to lead all of us to lead to Jesus. That God has been working through His chosen people Israel, all leading up to Jesus so that the message of salvation would come to them. And He's saying, hey, by the way, these Gentiles who are believing, they were not an afterthought. No, 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 no. Before the foundation of the world, God had chosen them. Before the foundation of the world, He had purposed that they would believe. Every single one of them was in God's heart and mind, just like His chosen people. The promise has always been, not just to Israel, but that the nations would come and worship and glorify God and be blessed through His covenant promises with Israel. What an incredible thought. And the word of the Lord continued to spread. And Paul and Barnabas stay there. Now we're going to see this, and this comes back to this spirit-dependent, flexible persistence where Paul and Barnabas here decide to stay until the moment they're run out of town. Now other times we'll see the persecution begins and they leave. But here they choose to stay. They stay all the way till the moment that they're run out of town. And this happens by them going to devout women in high standing and to leading men who stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. We don't know how long they stayed, but they stayed until they were driven out. And then they knock the dust off of their feet against them. A sign of judgment and they move on to Iconium. Yet here is this Final statement by Luke, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is, this is a Lukean phrase if ever there was one. Those who have been reading Luke Acts up to this point, the original recipients of this are going to catch this because Luke, all throughout his gospel, joy is the sign of true repentance. It's the sign of those who are lost and are found. It's the sign of the sheep who is lost and he's found. It's the sign of, of the woman who's rejoicing because the coin that she had lost, she found. It's what the, the prodigal son does when he returns, both he and his father and all who will enter in. They rejoice at the returning of the prodigal. Joy is for those who repent and come to Christ. And then in the book of Acts, what is the sign that people have come to true faith in Christ? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we might look at this message, brothers and sisters, and we might go, okay, but I'm not preaching to a synagogue of Jews. And I don't know what impact it's going to have if I look at my neighbor, if I look at my coworker, and say, all that you could not be justified by under the law of Moses, you can be justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But listen to me, listen to me. While we, you and I might not be striving to measure up under the law of Moses, we are all seeking to self-justify. In so many ways, every day, every person you come in contact with is desperately seeking to self-justify. It may not be the law of Moses. It may be the law of the paleo diet. It may be the law of some, some uh, way of raising their children. It may be the law of climbing the corporate ladder. 
It may be the law. I don't know what it is. But they are desperately trying to say, I matter. I've measured up. I've attained. Look at me. I'm doing it. I've got it together. Please, somebody say to me. Somebody like my post. Somebody affirm my position. Somebody please tell me I'm justified. I like the right music. I stand for the right things. I wear the right clothes. I hang out with the right people and the right demographic of people at the right times and I know the right things to say. Please, somebody justify me. And You and I who are in Christ have the only message that can give to those who are looking for water where there is none and who are paying money for bread that isn't bread and will not satisfy. We have the only message available that will give them True joy. We have the only message that can come to them and say, cease striving. For it has all been done. And by grace through faith in Christ, you can be justified. Brothers and sisters, proclaim, proclaim the promise fulfilling justifying Jesus. Even if you do not see a bunch of people clamoring around trying to fulfill the law of Moses, know everyone around you is desperate to be justified. Striving daily to find the type of joy and filling that these disciples, Luke says, had when Paul and Barnabas leave. Full of a joy that could never be taken from them and indwelt by the Spirit of God. What an incredible, incredible message. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. I thank you for the opportunity to preach a message about a message. And I pray, Lord, I pray that in some way you've worked through my feeble attempts to, to clarify this, to encourage us. And Lord, I pray, I pray that as we continue through this book of Acts, and, and at times it seems like we're hearing the same things over and over again, but may your spirit work in us that we would be encouraged by this glorious hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And we would, we would be reminded that your spirit is at work in our lives, and we would go out knowing that this message of Jesus Christ is the only message that can give to people the joy they're desperate for. It's the only message that saves. Help us, Lord. Give us compassion for the people that we come across. Give us compassion for our neighbors and our coworkers. We don't want to just be at battle with them. We, we want to compassionately persuade them. We want to, to stand firm in the truth. Help, help us in those moments. When we're scared because, because our culture tells us if we, if we speak truth, we're somehow mean and unkind. Oh God, we need your help. Different context, maybe, perhaps, but, but, but these were the same things that Paul and Barnabas are facing, Lord, and your spirit empowered them and boldly they proclaimed the gospel with compassion. And I pray that you would, you would raise us up to do the same, believing that your spirit is at work, knowing that there are those you're going to bring across our paths who are desperately seeking to be justified and trying all kinds of things and on the inside they're dying because they're running to that which is not water and trying to drink. They're feasting upon that which is not bread. And in the meantime, they're giving all of their life and energy to it. Oh God, grant us the opportunities to declare to them the promise-filling, justifying Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.